Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They were odd outfits. The young people wore typical business attire of bland shirts and chinos, but paired with bright fluorescent running shoes. At the Supreme Court, news interns had to be prepared to sprint. Recording devices aren't allowed in America's highest court, so getting landmark rulings on air as quickly as possible often came down to a test of speed and agility. Inside the building, just as a justice began reading a decision, interns were handed printed copies. They sprinted them across the plaza of the Supreme Court to deliver them to anchors waiting on the marble steps. For big decisions, whoever ran fastest could break it first. It was christened the running of the interns. Since the pandemic, opinions have instead been released online. The interns can hang up their sneakers. But health precautions have also prompted the court to live stream arguments for the first time, and it's kept the stream even as the courtroom has reopened to the public. The Supreme Court is therefore more accessible than ever, even as the majority of Americans say it is out of touch. But as the court democratises a bit, it's turning its focus towards the structure of democracy. I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how is the Supreme Court changing American democracy? A case that came before the court this week could upend the way America conducts elections. Moore v. Harper brings to the national stage a once-fringe legal theory. What impact could it have? And with the final race in the midterms now complete, how healthy does democracy in America look right now? With me this week to talk about the Supreme Court and also about the health of America's democratic institutions are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun. Idris, how are you doing? What's going on in D.C.? Not too much is going on. Um, Hal Hodson, our colleague, was in town, so I caught up with him, cooked him dinner. That was quite nice. What did you cook for Hal? Uh, I made him steak. I made him potatoes since he's Irish and I wanted him to feel comfortable. Um, And I made some Brussels sprouts. That sounds excellent. Oh, and I made uh, cardamom buns over the weekend. So I fed him some of those. Wow. That's impressive. They were good. That is impressive. And Charlotte, what have you been up to? I am doing well. I had the pleasure of going on a reporting trip with you and John Fasman last week, which was really fun. And I can say with confidence that the meal that we had in a parking lot outside that was basically simply bread and meat and tortilla chips was not up to Idris's standards, but we enjoyed it nonetheless. It was a good trip, and you'll be hearing more about it on Czech soon. 
And since we last spoke, we've had the results of the Georgia Senate election, the runoff. What did you guys make of those other than that Raphael Warnock seems to be a very impressive candidate? It is funny. I mean, the results kind of didn't change that much from the first round to the runoff. And, you know, it's a fairly expensive thing to do. We got the result that we expected. So it does highlight how weird the Georgia law is that requires the runoff. Um, I, I was kind of surprised at how close it was. I think we sometimes have the tendency, again, to overdetermine what happens. So some people say that Warnock's sort of embrace and courting of independent Republican voters was what made the difference relative to Stacey Abrams, who was trying to rally the base. But I think that it's really hard to separate that out from the fact that he was facing such a weak candidate and she was facing a relatively strong one. Okay, well, I think we'll be talking a fair bit about Raphael Warnock in the future. But let's park that here for now. This week's episode is about the Supreme Court. And the court's back under the microscope because it was looking at an election process case that had provoked a lot of alarm. That hearing was earlier this week. And like with anything court-related, I wanted to hear from Steve Maisie, the Economist's court watcher, about what this case, Moore v. Harper, is really about. It's a bit of a story, and it involves many corners of the American political system. It's hard to fit on a bumper sticker, uh, but uh, the crux of the question in Moore versus Harper is who gets to set the rules for federal elections? And the focus of the case is gerrymandering, and specifically a strikingly gerrymandered map that Republicans in North Carolina drew a year ago for the 2022 election. Um, I say it was striking because while there are roughly equal numbers of Republican and Democratic voters in North Carolina, the map gave Republicans 10 safe seats to the Democrats, four. But it wasn't used, and that's because voting rights groups successfully sued in North Carolina um, in state court, claiming that the map violated North Carolina's state constitution uh, and its guarantee of free and fair elections. Republican lawmakers were not happy about having their map um, torn up, uh, so they summoned a theory called the independent state legislature theory, according to which state legislatures should enjoy full autonomy in the realm of all election law, all election rules, and cannot be constrained in the least by other state actors. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, they decided to hear Moore versus Harper to fully consider and decide the heart of the matter. And Steve, you have an uncanny ability to listen to these Supreme Court oral arguments and interpret or predict which way the court's leaning. It sounds like from our conversations before and from what you've written that actually you don't think the Supreme Court is going to embrace the full bore version of independent state legislature theory. I don't think they are going to. We went into the argument knowing that there are a few justices who are sympathetic to the theory because three of them would have put aside that fairer map in North Carolina in favor of the distorted one that lawmakers passed. Um, those three justices are Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch. But even a couple of those, um, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, didn't seem fully receptive to the full-bore version of the theory that would prevent any other state institution from having any control over over how election law runs. There were three justices who were clearly not buying into the idea, the three liberal justices, Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Kagan in particular talked about the terrible consequences that would flow if there were um, a decision that gave life uh, for the first time to the independent state legislature theory. 
Uh, but then there was this final trio of justices who were kind of in the middle, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who themselves threw cold water on most of what the Republican lawmaker's lawyer had to say. They were not so receptive to the idea, but they seem to be searching for a third way here. And what does that look like? Does that look like North Carolina being allowed to keep its crazily gerrymandered map, but the North Carolina state legislature not being allowed to overturn the results of presidential elections? Or does it look like something else? I think this third way is actually mostly a win for those who are opposed to the independent state legislature theory. It would not adopt anything like the strong version. So constraints on legislatures would remain, including substantive constraints like the one that the state Supreme Court used to uh, overturn that very badly gerrymandered map. Um, So state courts could continue to enforce those limits, including vague ones like the free and fair elections clauses in the North Carolina state constitution. But if a state court ruling departed egregiously from normal types of adjudication and from traditions in that state constitutional history, then federal courts might be able to step in and stand up for the legislative rules that the state court might be throttling. Now, this is a a bit of a vague standard, um, and the justices spent a good portion of the three hours trying to get a handle on how deferential federal courts should be to state courts. But overall, I think six justices seem to think they should be quite deferential, uh, but they couldn't quite agree on the language to capture that. How big a deal is Moore versus Harper? I mean, to read some of the coverage of the case before the case was argued, this was an incredibly important election law case, perhaps the most important for a long time. Do you share that view? It could have been an extremely worrisome case. Um, Neil Katyal, who was one of the other lawyers arguing against it, kept using this metaphor of a, of a nuclear bomb. I mean, in its strong version, it would have declared all state Supreme Court rulings involving elections over several hundred years unconstitutional under the federal constitution. So all these accumulated rulings about voting rights and gerrymandering and the nature of elections and how they're held and when they're held and voter ID and anything that wasn't specifically passed by the state legislature would have fallen along with the independent redistricting commissions that are in place in at least eight states. They would have just disappeared. Um, But if my reading of the oral argument on Wednesday is correct, I think we should be somewhat reassured. I don't think the court is going to nuke the foundations of American electoral democracy. Charlotte, Morvey Harper's been coming down the tracks for a while. And as Steve explained there, there was a version of this case where if the Supreme Court justices went one way, the consequences could be pretty alarming for American democracy. But can you just rewind a bit and explain how this independent state legislature legal theory became a thing? Well, it's worth highlighting that this is not a theoretical issue. So in 2020, there were Trump loyalists in legislatures that wanted to use slates of electors to determine close contests. And so that's why there's so much attention on this case, is that it would be used in a similar way 
So there's kind of a range of different bad outcomes, as Steve described. The most extreme is that you change the results of a presidential election. Less extreme but still worrisome is that you have no checks on extreme gerrymandering or other issues related to the administration of federal elections. But the one that people fear the most is this question of whether when there's a close race, you could use slates of electors in a legislature controlled by one party to actually determine the outcome. Yeah. So the core of this dispute comes from a bit of the Constitution that says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law, make or alter such regulations. And the argument here is that because it says prescribed by the state legislatures that state courts have no oversight, they have no ability even to intervene. That's the theory. I do think that a lot of the coverage of it had been really uh, hyperventilated. You know, there was a big gap between what the legal profession was saying, even liberal-minded legal scholars, none of them thought that even a maximalist ruling in this case, would allow a state to retroactively change election results in a presidential election because there were still the Voting Rights Act, still the 15th Amendment, still due process protections, equal protection for votes. And so, you know, you have things that are being written that a lot of people are consuming. Uh, One of them is uh, here. It says, our conservative Supreme Court stands ready to allow states to legally steal presidential elections. And then it says, it is not an overstatement to say that this case could completely upend elections and erase the power of our votes for president. And it's a complete overstatement. I mean, it's completely wrong to to say that. But I think that we got into um, a situation where the fear of what Trump tried to do means that that people are primed to think that this sort of election case is going to sanction authoritarian takeover of America. And that, I think, was never really in the cards. Well, I think that one thing that's important, a distinction that's important to make is that It clearly would complicate and cast shadows over elections for longer than is currently the case, right? So that all those protections remain addressed, but it would be a process that would be more involved and would have multiple levels, right? Yeah, it would definitely make things harder. But I think that there's a limit to how many times you can cry wolf about democratic threats. Like I think January 6th was the most extreme threat to democracy that we've seen. I think that the people who were running who said that they were basically going to nullify election results if they could was a really big threat to American democracy. I I think that this legal theory is a bit harebrained, but I don't think it, it sort of rose the level of existential threat that some of those other things did. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what counts as a single act that would be a blow to democracy where democracy would seek to exist as we know it, um, which is something that is obviously a sensationalized statement. But it is the reality that incrementally you can chip away at what any thinking person would call a sensible system of governance and elections. And that the cumulative result of these incremental steps can be quite damaging. Yeah, I agree with both of you on this, actually, maybe unsurprisingly. I mean, I think Idris is right. There was some crazily overheated rhetoric about this case. J. Michael Luttig, who's a conservative lawyer, and he was one of the co-counsels arguing against independent state legislature theory, wrote in The Atlantic that Morvey Harper was the most important case for American democracy in the almost two and a half centuries since America's founding. It's called clickbait. When you listen to the oral arguments, it's a little OTT. But Charlotte, I I think you're right as well, that because people present these arguments in such an overheated way, it then blinds you a little bit to the incremental changes that are being made, right? Because measured against that, what's happened, you know, doesn't look too bad, right? But 
then it becomes harder to discuss lots of little changes which put together lead in a direction that perhaps is regrettable. Yeah. One thing I want to highlight just about this case, which is not distinct to elections, but is interesting more broadly as we have a court that is so dominated by conservatives, is the way that these conservatives interpret their mandate of originalism. So Stephen Calabresi, who's not a lefty scholar, he's a leader of the board of the Federal Society, in his amicus brief, he said, quote, principled originalism compels rejection of the petitioner's claims. The more one knows about the Constitution's text, history, and deep structure, the clearer it is that petitioners must lose, end quote. And I think this is one of many cases in which I'm interested to see the dynamic within the conservative justices between uh, decisions that can be rightly claimed to be an extension of their originalist philosophy and other decisions that may stray and are more closely aligned simply with conservative politics. Idris, there's one other election case coming up in the court this term, Merrill v. Milligan. Do you want to say anything about that before we move on to some Supreme Court history? Yeah, that one is a challenge to another set of maps. This one created in Alabama, in which the Republican legislature there approved a map that had only a single majority black district out of seven, whereas African-Americans make up um, 27% of the population of Alabama. And there was a lawsuit saying that this violated the Voting Rights Act, and particularly Section 2 of it. And you know, I think the justices are primed to say that Alabama's map is fine, but the argument that Alabama was making was not that Section 2 is constitutionally invalid, and I think that the court is not going to try to invalidate that. I think that they might limit the scope of what it applies to for district courts in the future. Okay, we'll look back to the time when the Supreme Court decided an election result in a moment. But first, if you're in the festive spirit, then please give us a gift and fill out our listener survey. We're always trying to make the show better and knowing more about you really helps us to do that. To fill it out, go to economist.com slash uspodsurvey. Should take around 10 minutes, which I know is a bit of a pain, but you'd be doing us a favour if you did that. Again, the link is economist.com slash uspodsurvey. We'll put that in the notes for this episode. The polls had barely closed when things started to go unexpectedly. A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a state both... It was completely extraordinary. I mean, on the night itself, I was at the American embassy because they always have an election night party here in London. It was all hanging on Florida. And so we were looking and looking at this huge screen in the room and Florida went blue for Gore. It was called for Gore. Now Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor and my roommate here at The Economist. But during the election in 2000, she was our US editor. Stand by, stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the too-close-to-call column. Ah. And then they suddenly said, too-close-to-call, when all the Democrats in the room had stopped celebrating. (laughs) And then they called it for Bush. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. By the end of the night, George W. Bush was ahead by about 0.01%. I couldn't believe it when I woke up the next day and it was completely tied. 
Weeks of legal wrangling ensued over how the recounts should be done and redone. Words like dimpled chads and undervoting entered the lexicon. We played it here in Britain as rather a comedy. Uh, it, it sounds a bit disgraceful to say so, but it seemed extraordinary that America's political system could be so much like some Rube Goldberg crazy machine instead of a straightforward democracy. It seemed suddenly it was much more complicated than we'd imagined. Eventually, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a hand recount of some questioned ballots. But the deadline for a final tally was getting closer. George Bush's lawyers asked the federal Supreme Court to intervene to stop the recount. They used a then relatively novel argument, saying the Florida court had overstepped and written new election law. Well, we've argued that the Florida Supreme Court overturned the work of the legislature that in this area, the Florida Supreme Court does not have the right to do that because the Constitution vests the responsibility for determining the manner in which electors are appointed in the legislatures of the states. The court did stop the recount, but on other grounds, saying that the recount rules were too vague, leading to the arbitrary and disparate treatment of votes. But in a concurring opinion, three justices drew on much of what the Bush lawyers had argued, some of the first seeds of independent state legislature jurisprudence. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. The ruling effectively made George W. Bush president. Al Gore conceded the next day. And now, my friends, in a phrase I once addressed to others, it's, it's time for me to go. But for many, the rancor continued. I think as far as Bush's legitimacy was concerned, that had been sorted out and people really did want to move on. But one major point that was carried away was the partisanship of the Supreme Court. It left a legacy of feeling not only that the court sometimes just got too activist or got too conservative, but that it was actually taking a party line between Democrats and Republicans in in an unhealthy way, and I think it hasn't recovered from that. And independent state legislature theory has now returned to the court, where several veterans of Bush v. Gore will get to decide what it means now. Idris, it's kind of bonkers to think back to Bush v. Gore in 2000 and to look at the Supreme Court now and think that you have three justices, John Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, who were all on Bush's legal team back in 2000. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And it does remind you just quite how crazy and chaotic that time was. I mean, I was quite little um, (laughs) when all of that happened. So Rub it in. Yeah, I was six. I bet you were watching C-SPAN, though, knowing you, age six. No, I did. I watched the debates and I voted. I, I went with my parents to the polling station. I insisted that I be allowed to vote. And they gave me a ballot. I voted for Bush because I liked his name more. This will all be useful information about your voter fraud for when you run for office later. One thing about the Supreme Court in that moment is it was such a test, right? This was something that really required the American public to have faith in the outcome of the Supreme Court's decision. And Al Gore immediately, without hesitation, accepted. And I wonder if 
that were repeated with the makeup of the Supreme Court bench now, whether there would be a similar reaction. What you saw in 2020 also was Republicans who say that they're concerned about the legitimacy of the court really trying to use it as though it were part of the partisan apparatus. I mean, the Pennsylvania v. Texas uh, lawsuit that was filed in which a majority of Republican attorneys general sued to invalidate the votes in states that Biden won, you know, what it betrayed, aside from like no basis in constitutional law, was that a feeling that these are our justices and they have to do right by us. And Trump, I think, explicitly said that as well. And so I think Republicans are endangering the court and its legitimacy, which I think is important to maintain by relying on it in this way and trying to do it. I think so far, actually, you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic in the court's role as being a bulwark against the democratic threat that's present in this country, because not only the Supreme Court didn't really entertain that theory at all, but, you know, all of the crazy claims that Donald Trump made in district courts in front of federal judges, almost all of them were laughed out of court, including by judges that he appointed uh, himself. There's still a sort of adherence to norms that I think is, is very much present in the federal judiciary, which I think is sadly missing from the Senate or Congress. I think someone like Neil Gorsuch is clearly a serious justice. I mean, he's he's someone who I think is well-respected across the Washington establishment. I wonder about Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas. There's been much ink spilled on the political activities of, of Ginny Thomas and her support for Trump's cause. Do you think, Idris, that that is, or John, do you think that that's a legitimate cause of concern about the legitimacy of Clarence Thomas if he were to be faced in, with a case with which Trump was the main party? I do. And I think it points to a problem with the Supreme Court that justices don't recuse themselves, right? There are just no rules around that stuff. It's all, you know, they can make the rules up as they go along. And I think that's weird in this case. I generally, like Idris, I view the court as a bulwark um, against the bad stuff. And I think the fact that it is such a conservative leaning court with a conservative majority sort of makes it more useful there, right? Because to the extent that the threats to American democracy most recently have come from the right with people thinking about ignoring election results, you know, stop the steal candidates and stuff. The fact that the bulwark is conservative leaning and that conservatives therefore are inclined to think it's on their side becomes kind of useful when the court's job is actually to turn out mad election cases bought by the Trump campaign. But, but Idris, what do you think on Charlotte's question on the, the Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas thing? I, I think it's a problem. I mean, justices do recuse themselves. Um, just recently, uh, Justice Jackson uh, recused herself from the Harvard affirmative action case because she had been sitting on the board of it. But the problem is that it's up to them, right? Yeah. Like that's that's the core of it. And I think that it is reflected in a flaw in our constitutional design, which you know assumes that that lifetime judges are going to be immune from the pull of, of factionalism and kind of adhere to their understanding of the law. And that, I think, hasn't played out. Presidents are very strategic in picking Supreme Court justices to play this game. Um, I, you know, I, I think constitutional law is generally quite messy. And no country has a system like this in which the Supreme Court is as, has seized as much power as it has. But I don't know, I, like Britain has a Supreme Court. Can you name anyone on the British Supreme Court, John? I can't currently, no. How many American Supreme Court justices can you name? I could name all of them. All of them. I mean, that's insane. European Commission, name any judge anywhere in the world who's not American. 
as long as we're bashing on America's justice system, I'd like to point out that in the states, justices are elected a lot of the time. It varies, right? But just in case we think that the judicial branch is independent from political forces, I mean, there are these chaotic, completely chaotic court elections. I wrote a Lexington column about that once. I went to Tennessee to follow this justice around. He'd been elected unopposed year after year. But it was around the time that there was a lot of pushback against Obamacare in conservative circles. And some group came in from out of state and started running adverts against him, saying he was a pro-Obamacare judge. He had never ruled on any case to do with Obamacare. Uh, And he was in real trouble politically, and he didn't know what to do. And so he did what any sensible politician in Tennessee would do and called up Dolly Parton, who he was at high school with. (laughs) And his campaign flyers, his campaign posters, basically had him with Dolly Parton just saying, you know, re-elect this judge. And, And it worked. The ultimate endorsement. Yeah, judicial elections in America are completely mad. Well, we've wandered away from the subject a little bit, but we'll get back to it in a moment to check up on the health of America's democratic institutions beyond the courts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the run-up to the midterms, there was a lot of discussion, including here on this show, about the broader risks to American democracy. Now that the election's over, we wanted to take stock. Idris, you spoke to Nicholas Stephanopoulos at Harvard about all of this. Yes, I did. I wanted to talk to him because he is a law professor and a political scientist who has done a lot to improve our understanding of the extent of partisan gerrymandering in this country. And I wanted to ask him how he was feeling about the health of our democracy right now. Better than I have been in a couple of years, I'd say, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that we've become accustomed in America to having highly biased congressional maps for you know, a decade or more. Uh, but if you look at the, the 2022 congressional election, for the first time in a long time, uh, we have an essentially unbiased House of Representatives in the aggregate. That's one encouraging point. Another one is that we just held a major election without significant problems. There, there wasn't really dramatic election subversion. There wasn't widespread disenfranchisement. Turnout was generally high. And so despite some concerns, the, the mechanics of the election were, were quite sound. And then going forward, you know, the, the real concern has been that Uh, success for certain anti-democratic candidates now might enable the theft of a presidential election in the future. Uh, But a lot of the candidates most associated with that anti-democratic election-denying viewpoint lost. And, And if Congress is able to pass the reform of the Electoral Count Act, that would presumably also be another optimistic sign for you, right? 
Yeah, and that seems pretty likely over the next month or so in the lame duck session. And, and that would further address one more weakness in the system that opened up a vulnerability to future election subversion. It would close that window uh, and, and make at least that threat less likely in 2024. So everything presumably is not rosy. What are the remaining issues that you see, the ones that you, that you are worried about still? Yeah, so I mentioned that in the aggregate at the congressional level, the U.S. House looks pretty unbiased. The picture looks pretty different if you zero in on a number of state legislatures around the country. So, for example, I litigated for a number of years a, a partisan gerrymandering case in Wisconsin. We ultimately lost. Well, in Wisconsin in November, the Democratic governor won statewide, and yet somehow Republican state legislative candidates won almost two-thirds of the seats in the Wisconsin legislature. So you have astronomical biases in some states around the country that really prevent the will of the people from being heard in those places. You know, it remains harder than it should be to vote in many places around the country. And so even if turnout numbers look respectable overall in November. They could be still better. I think for maybe a a decade, longer than a decade, some of those things that you've discussed have been talked about in this sort of existential manner, right? Um, Citizens United and Speech Now are going to basically wash American democracy away in a pile of money. The new Jim Crow was here. Voter suppression was, was here and going to, you know, take radical effect. And, you know, now we're thinking about gerrymandering, electoral subversion, all these things. Do you think that there has been somewhat of an overuse of the existential language, or how do you think about that? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, none of these factors, I guess, on their own or together, I think amount to an existential threat to the most basic idea of of democracy. I do think that all these threats are real and, and still with us, And I think if you look at their cumulative impact, like what disturbs me the most about American democracy are some studies finding that on policy after policy after policy, the will of majority of Americans isn't reflected in what the government does. And instead, we have these uh, really dramatic skews in favor of the wealthy and the ideological extremes and the status quo. And so, you know, that kind of policy bias away from what most Americans want, I think, is a really dire problem. It's not a dire problem of whether we have a democracy at all, but it's a dire problem in terms of whether we have a sort of vibrant, successful democracy as opposed to a stagnant and skewed and distorted democracy. So, Idris, it looks like Morvi Harper will not be as bad as some people feared it would be. The results of the midterms were pretty cheering in the sense that all those people running on election denial slates to administer elections lost. Nicholas Stephanopoulos there is pretty optimistic about some of the things that people have been worried about recently, but more worried about the others. Do you think he's worrying about the right things? I think so. I think he has a good sense of how to gauge the threats that American democracy faces. I think that his point about gerrymandering being in aggregate close to zero in this election cycle was really interesting. That is different from what we'd been 
experiencing the last few years with the House of Representatives. But I, I think also his focus on what's going on in specific states is right. And I think that's a abrogation of representative democracy. And I think it's right to focus on on those things. It's interesting, though, how some things just play out differently than we'd expect. And I think the biggest example of that in recent years when it comes to an impact on the structure of American elections is the Citizens United decision. And President Obama, in his State of the Union after that decision, said that it would, quote, open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. And if you look at the numbers, the most remarkable change in recent years has been the rise of small donors, actually. So in this cycle, the small donors, those giving $200 or less, they gave more than $749 million to the House and Senate. It's about quadruple what it was in 2014. But nevertheless, you still have top donors. So the, the top 100 donors gave $1.2 billion, so 60% more than the small donors all put together. So I think that points to two kind of interesting phenomena. One is that just because you have a lot of big spenders doesn't mean you can't have a commensurate, incredibly powerful force in American politics, which you do now through these small donors. And together, both of those phenomenon point to supporting more partisan candidates. If you look at the way those dollars flow, it's a bit less moderate. They're more likely to support people on the extremes. You have these decisions that come down from the Supreme Court, and different people have expectations of how they're going to play out. And it's not always precisely as initially expected. And Democrats were worried about the partisan impact, right? They thought that big business and rich people were going to donate so much money to Republicans without limits. And they were worried that they would basically, you know, lose every election forever because money was so powerful and they wouldn't be able to compete. Well, what we see now is that Democrats are routinely outraising and outspending Republicans by margins of two to one. And part of that is about the realignment in American politics. So college educated people are much more likely to be Democratic now. They have more money. A huge majority of, of Wall Street donors went to Mitt Romney in 2012, and the huge majority of them went to Joe Biden in 2020. Like you said, the um, exact consequences of this stuff is difficult to game out. I, I think Democrats have gotten into a bit of a rhetorical bind where they know that existential threats to democracy are very motivating, and I think that there's risk that they might overuse that. And I think a lot of the narrative around voter suppression has also not materialized in the same way that they expected. Studies have not found convincing evidence that voter ID laws or things like that have meaningfully affected the outcomes of elections. So I think that when real threats emerge, when things like election deniers and these sorts of things come up, you know, that makes it easier for voters, I think, to disregard it because they see Democrats as exclusively talking about democracy being one election away from, from ending. So I worry a bit about that. It's also to be a bit self-referential, a journalism problem, right? You could imagine in Moore v. Harper, if the Supreme Court had gone the full way and embraced the independent state legislature theory, made it easier for state legislatures to overturn election results or pick their own slate of electors, that's a huge deal, right? But what was the chance of that? Maybe a 5% chance? I mean, I'm, I'm making that even less, maybe. I'm pulling that from thin air. So when you're covering these things you face the choice between either you ignore something because it's pretty low probability or you write about something that's low probability and probably give the impression that it's more likely than it is. And I think in journalism, your sort of incentives are to cover the thing because if you don't cover the thing and it ends up being the thing that ends American democracy, you look really silly. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in expectation, very few things matter in the long run. 
and like the incentive for journalism is to ignore that reality and pretend that everything might really, really, really matter. But you know, there are very few events that are world changing. But if you look at the headlines, you know, you see a constant stream of things that might change the world that we know. I do think that there are still malign forces in American politics. I mean, just last week, Donald Trump was saying that uh, he thinks that the Constitution may need to be terminated because of how he disagreed with Twitter's policy. And this is just a, an extraordinary statement from a former president that we've been completely conditioned to ignoring because, oh, that's just Donald Trump ignoring basic democratic tenets. Uh, what, what else is new? And I think a lot of it is uniquely Trumpy phenomenon. But I, I do think that there are still quite a, a few threats that are present in, in our democracy. Okay, it's quiz time. Justice Stephen Breyer retired earlier this year. When he was up for confirmation in 1994, The Economist commended his first-rate reputation and correctly predicted he would sail through the process. Question one. Breyer clocked in almost 28 years on the court, which is longer than average, but not the longest. How long was the longest Supreme Court term of office? Hmm. I'll take an approximate guess. I'd say 42. Idris is currently trying to calculate it in minutes. <laughs> I'm going to go 43. 43. This is such a Price is Right contest again. Okay, 42 to 43. Who wins? Uh, it was 36 years, seven months, and eight days to be uh, precise. So we both lose under Price is Right rules, but I was closer. So I should just say I win. Was it John Marshall or someone else? It was Justice William O. Douglas who sat on the court from 1939 to 1975 and fiercely defended New Deal legislation. He had four different wives in the course of his time on the court. So there, just some extra trivia for you. Question two. Many Supreme Court justices have busy retirements. One justice, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned from the court to run for president. Who did he lose to? Hmm. Was Was it FDR? I have no idea. It was Woodrow Wilson in 1916, and it was pretty close, just 23 electoral college votes in it. Hughes didn't leave Washington forever, though. President Harding made Hughes Secretary of State, and then after that, he returned to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice in 1930. So that's quite a boomerang. Wow. Those are some uh, niche justices. Niche justices. You guys were doing too well on the quiz, so we had to turn the difficulty level up a few notches. Charlotte Idris, thanks as ever. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz with research by Erica Shin. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. And if you'd like to get more Economist coverage, including this week's Lexington column on Raphael Warnock, you'll need an Economist subscription. Go to economist.com slash uspod for the best introductory offer. You can find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place at economist.com slash checkspod. And if you want to send us an email about this podcast or about anything else related to American politics or Idris's cooking, then the address for that is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance for you next week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 